So last night, I uh, had to cut some of the sermon because I have too many asides that I do. And so we're going to recap a little bit of the end of chapter 3 and then jump into chapter 4 because it's really important as we continue to understand what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the very end of chapter 3. Again, I just want to remind you, the reason why I want you to have your Bibles is because ultimately I'm not the source, I'm not the authority. I want you to be able to feed yourself and go to the source itself. Um, I'm a fallible human and finite, so I could misunderstand something. And so you, you want to make sure you check your work. And ultimately, when you go back home, you're not going to have, you know, all this. But you, but you will have this. And if you don't have one of these, please let us know. We can get you one of these. So look at um, Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. I'm just reading from the ESV. It'll be on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, this is, okay, remember just where we were. He just tried to murder three guys who didn't worship him. And then in, instead of them successfully being killed, um, there's a son of God there's with them, and they leave unscathed. They don't even smell like smoke except his, but the people that put them in there died. And so he just experienced that. And this is his response. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. So there's a few things to consider when we just listen to what Nebuchadnezzar just said. First, you have to see that he talks about God impersonally. Note, it's not his God, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Do you see that? He's not saying, blessed be my God. He's not there yet. You have to take his words with a grain of salt in his sincerity, as we've seen throughout this story. But something that's interesting, at the very end of verse 28, he seems like he respects them for not bowing down to him. Do you see that? And set aside the king's command. He respects their integrity. If you remember throughout the text, he has a bunch of suck-ups around him. Oh, king, live forever. Oh, king. And they just say whatever he wants to hear. And, you know, even though he's a fool, he can kind of sense when people are are just sucking up to him. You guys know what it's like to see a suck-up. And maybe you've been a suck up. You see it all the time. And he knows it. And he respects their defiance. And, but, but you know what? He probably wouldn't respect their defiance if they were like, King, you're wicked. We'll never worship you. But what do they do? They, they choose the third way, right? The, the three ways typically people do. The two ways typically people do is either outright defiance and anger and hostility or physically fighting back or the other way is compromise and they choose neither of those they choose the middle way which is respectful defiance filled with gentleness characterized with gentleness and knowing who you are and seeking to love them and you see that they actually love nebuchadnezzar they have a heart of love for him. They have compassion for him, this very, very broken, wicked man. And so I, you can see there, the way they defy has, a, has an attitude, and he respects that attitude. Now let's see this declaration Neb makes in verse 29. I don't know. Do you guys hear the little slight feedback that's coming through? You guys hearing that? Or is it just me? Yeah, you guys hear it up here? I don't know if it's maybe the monitor, but just throwing that out there. 
Therefore, I make a decree, verse 29, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. Okay, so at this point, he's understanding that no other God is like God, like Yahweh, the God of Israel, and yet he doesn't understand the heart of God yet. This is often what happens when any rulers try to take on Christianity. They create, they impose their own worldview because they have not yet been shaped by God's word. So they impose their own senses and worldview upon the people. And hey, if, if you don't speak honorably, I'm going to massacre your family. <laughs> you like that, God? Right? And he's like, no, that, that's not what I'm trying to do. You can still see Nebuchadnezzar is characterized by being extremely violent and aggressive. And that's going to be a mark of his kingdom and his empire until he has a radical encounter and changes. He needs a changed heart. His thinking is slightly changing. His theology is slightly changing, but his heart is still the same. He continues in verse 30. Then he, the king, promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Remember, the ending of chapter 2 and 3, both are the same. Daniel is elevated, though evil men are plotting against him. In chapter 3, the same thing happens. God's people are faithful in a land where they have no favor. They're slaves, and yet they are elevated at the very highest level because they focus on faithfulness, not outcomes. Remember that? I keep beating that same drum. Faithfulness, not outcomes they're focused on and God honors that and they are ascended into very high roles in the greatest superpower of the world at that time which is a good reminder that you let the Lord promote you you focus on faithfulness and let the Lord promote you don't pry doors open pray doors open you focus on loving God and loving people and honoring him and he will promote you in due season in the way that he sees fit that goes for school work sports, anything. Now, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, he writes this message to the world, like speaking as the, the emperor. To the nations and peoples of every language who live on all the earth. And the reason why he's doing it in every language, remember this empire crossed all kinds of nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Is that true, what he just said? It's not a trick question. Does that sound true? Yeah. You can say true things and still have an unchanged heart. See, Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating that. He's saying the right things. He's kind of thinking the right things, but his heart is still unmoved. He's still king in his heart. Now look at verse 4. We're kind of going to be jumping around. Verse 4 of chapter 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this sometime later, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So here he is in his prosperity. And in the prosperity, it's often the times that we forget the Lord, isn't it? How, how many of you have had a resurgence, a fresh 
growth in your relationship with God in the midst of the most prosperous times of your life versus the most painful times in your life, right? It's usually the painful times that wake us up to reality, that our life is like a vapor. And Nebuchadnezzar is in a season of peace and prosperity, and he forgets all that he says and who the Lord is and who he is. See, because a big important revelation that Nebuchadnezzar needs to have is not just who God is, but who he is in light of God, and he's ignorant to both and blind to both. So God mercifully, keyword mercifully, sends him another dream that shakes him awake, that wakes him up, that terrifies him, that puts him in his place. No matter how powerful he is, he cannot control his dream life. And his dreams terrify him. He does not know what it means, and he knows it's significant. All of us have had dreams. I had so many dreams last night. I can't tell you how many dreams I had last night. I was like an insane person, how many dreams I had, right? But there's sometimes you have a dream, and you're like, there's something about that dream. And Nebuchadnezzar knows that there's something about this dream that, that, that's otherworldly. It's not just an ordinary dream because some weird Taco Bell. It was an unusual dream that had spiritual significance, and he doesn't know what to do. And this is a good reminder also how dumb Nebuchadnezzar is of how dumb we are, how slow the spiritual process can be. How many of us here know what it's like to have this long road of like, oh, you're right, God, and then we forget him. Oh, you're right, God, and we forget him. My process with God was painfully slow. I became a Christian when I was 15. And my church growing up, the youth group that I was part of, did a lot of altar calls. You know, they had people come up here to get right with the Lord. They did like every week. <laughs> and I was like there every week. You know, we were like, oh, it's you again, Sam. You know? <laughs> and I just was so dumb and my heart was so hard. I was so slow to fully surrender. And God was very patient with me, which is a good reminder because there's many of you here who God is extremely, not many of you, all of you, God is extremely patient with you. And we need to be patient with each other. There's some of you here that God's working on, and you're not ready to surrender this week, and you won't be. You, just, you don't get it yet. You don't see it yet. And there's going to be some time in the future where it will happen. And so that's just a reminder even for the counselors and the leads and other friends of yours who care about you that this is not, you know, salvation or bust this week or like you, you must have your life completely changed at Hume or you're going to die. It's, it's possible. You could die. It is true. Your life is numbered, and I don't know the future for you, but God has us all in a process, and sometimes it's a lot slower than we would like, and sometimes you need to have a longer season of being ripped apart from the world and the empty promises it offers you before you realize it has nothing to offer you. It's a good reminder that sometimes it takes a long time. So now let's look at verse 6. Let's see how he responds. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? Where does he, his hope go to? Verse 6, so I issued an order calling the wise men of Babylon. <laughs> again? We're doing this again, Neb. To tell them, to have them tell me what my dream meant. I told them my dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. Verse 7. I mean, I can't believe Nebuchadnezzar keeps these guys around, right? Like, they, literally, they're getting paid to do nothing. And he's still trying to find every possible opportunity, every possible alternative than to humble himself and trust God. 
He doesn't go to prayer. He doesn't get on his knees. He's trying to find some other way so he doesn't have to depend on God, which he reminds me of myself a lot. And they fail. But we actually see some progress with Nebuchadnezzar because in the past, what did he threaten them if they weren't able to tell him his dream or interpret them? Yeah, I'm going to murder all of you and your family. There's some progress. Good, good. That's, that's good. That's a, that's a pretty good step. Now look at verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before him. There's going to be a lot of text this sermon. We're going to be doing a lot of reading, but there's a lot here that's worth looking along. So I just want to invite you. I know you guys are tired. I can see some of you guys just like slowly, just like slowly your head is getting lower and lower, right? I, I get it. I get it. It's hard. If you need to stand up, please stand up. If you need to just nudge gently, just gently. No, I mean, don't, don't break a rib. It's just a gentle, loving, loving nudge. Just try to keep us engaged because this is important. This is the most important this stuff this week, right? Um, I'm not the most important person this week, but this word and this time is the most important. Um, and so just, just try to stay locked in. I know it's difficult. Verse 8. <laughs> I just had a funny thought. Like some, one of you guys is nudging someone to wake up, and they're like, dude, you were the one who kept me up. <laughs> you and your snoring. How dare you nudge me awake? You did this to me. All right, verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before him. He was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. So this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. And in whom the spirit of the holy gods. Again, remember, he has a semblance and understanding of who God is, but he's still deeply uh, immature in his theology. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Daniel understands, actually, I'm skipping some verses, but he actually knows exactly what the vision means right away, and it shakes him. And, and it's interesting. If you look at your text, I'm not going to show it on the screen, but, it, it, but Daniel is like, I, I don't want this to be true. I don't want this to be true of you. He doesn't want to tell him the interpretation, not because he's afraid of him dying. Like, Daniel doesn't fear him. Remember, he has everything. He has Yahweh. He, has no, he can't be bought, and yet he actually has compassion and love for Nebuchadnezzar, which is just insane. Think about this. King Nebuchadnezzar is the physical man, the man who is responsible of the massacre of most of his family and friends, likely Daniel's own castration, years of suffering, and now he has love for the king. That is insane. That is a miracle. You can only have that kind of love for an enemy if you know how gracious and loving God has been to you. Nebuchadnezzar is dear to Daniel despite how messed up he is, and that is just absolutely bonkers. Now let's look at verse 20. We're going to skip because Daniel is going to repeat the vision and interpret it at the same time, so we'll save some time there. Verse 20. The tree you saw, actually, would you read this out loud? The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong. Wild animals lived in its shade. Is you, for you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. So God is kind because he is helping Nebuchadnezzar see the truth about God and himself and all that he has through this dream, through symbolism. And these images and symbols are not less real, 
but just as real as reality because they are pointing to reality. Sometimes God uses symbols and dreams and visions to help wake us up to reality because we're sleeping. So that's what God is doing because, because King Nebuchadnezzar in his own natural eyes and mindset, he cannot see reality correctly. It's all distorted through his worldview, through his, his corrupted lenses. So God needs to reach him through another angle. And I'm actually praying that for some of you, that God will give you dreams and visions to waken you up because you're not able to see these realities, these spiritual realities correctly in the natural. In fact, no one can see anything correctly in the natural alone. And Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to respond to this truth and give himself to God, humbling himself and acknowledging who God is and who he is. But he doesn't do that. We're going to see that. And, and this is a reminder. This is a really important reminder. Friends, we can respond to God's merciful truth and invitations by humbling ourselves. Or we can hold on, harden our hearts, and let him humble us which is far more painful. You can humble yourself, which is painful, or you can wait for him to humble you, which is far more painful. And how many of you here are dumb like me who just wait till God humbles you? <laughs> yes, I love how the youth pastors are the first ones. We're, we're the special cases that he has extra grace required for us. Nebuchadnezzar, in the interpretation goes, is the tree in this vision. Remember how I told you yesterday that one of the ways you interpret the Bible is that whatever a word, when it was first mentioned, it's called the law of first mention, in the Bible, it gives you a clue. It's, it's a pretty important thing. When's the first time we hear the word tree? In the garden. The first tree that we hear about is called the tree of life. See, the tree of life is just picture God's gift to bring life to all peoples, bubbling forth, blessing to all peoples. Ultimately, the tree of life was supposed to be accessible, likely, to all peoples in God's time, in his way. And Nebuchadnezzar is connected to that tree in one sense, because God has entrusted Nebuchadnezzar this high office of ruling the world, and in that office, he's supposed to be a life-giving agent to all peoples. He's supposed to be a blessing to all peoples, and remember the image of God? We talked about image of God. He's supposed to image God so that when people see Nebuchadnezzar, they should see a glimpse of what Yahweh is actually like in the way Nebuchadnezzar carries himself, the way he relates to the poor and the weak, the foreigner, the way he administers his affairs and, and everything. He's supposed to give the world a glimpse of what Yahweh is like. You're supposed to give a glimpse of what God is like in the way you relate with each other, the way you talk to each other. Every little thing you do gives a picture of what God is like, or it gives a distorted picture of what God is like. And Nebuchadnezzar, to this point, is giving a deeply distorted view of what God is like. Verse 20, it shows that he became strong and grew. And in Hebrew, it, this, this word, this language, this phrase could also mean grow hardened or become arrogant, overbearing. Verse 22, look at this language on verse 22. What does it say? Your greatness reaches up to heaven. What does that remind you of that we've talked about before? Yeah, good job. That sounds like Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Remember the spirit of Babylon, the attitude of Babylon? It's, the Bible's not what happened, but what always happens. It's all on cycle. It's all on repeat. These attitudes just keep coming back up this desire to make your name great. 
to reach heaven and, and to bridge the gap of heaven and earth, all the brokenness that we have on our own terms and our own ways instead of God's ways. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do that. In what ways do we tend to live like Nebuchadnezzar? Proud, not needing any help from anyone. You know, yesterday I talked about how we, we, we pursue self-glory, but another form of the way that we pursue to try to be like God is, is trying to just be self-sufficient. You, just, you don't want help from anyone. You don't need help from God. A couple of diagnostic, diagnostic kind of questions you could even ask yourself. If, do, you, do you ever go days without praying or reading your Bible? That just gives a hint about where our hearts are at because, because John 15, 6 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't abide in the vine, Jesus says, you can do nothing. We read that verse and we say, okay, well, that's fine, but I can do a lot of things without you, so I don't need to spend time abiding in you and meditating and sitting with you at your feet. See, that gives us a sign of our Nebuchadnezzar-like hearts. How many of you make decisions in life, big decisions in life, without even really consulting the Lord or the spiritual leadership? oh, I'll, I'll join that team, or I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to go there that summer, I'm going to do this. Remember what this says in the book of James? You shouldn't say today or tomorrow we're going to go do this and this and that city, but we should say if the Lord wills. How many of us can be like Nebuchadnezzar? We're going to just call our own shots and do what we decide to do, and then as we do it, we're like, would, would you bless this, God? How many of you have jumped into a relationship? You actually didn't pray about it. You like prayed about it. You're like, I prayed about it, right? Praying about it is, is code for thinking about it, right? And you jump into this relationship without actually consulting the Lord and what he wants, and then while you're in it, then you pray. You God, would you bless this? Because this is going weird. She's crazy, you know, or whatever it is, right? After the fact, we're like, God, I'm doing this thing, and then can you come alongside me and follow me along like a genie and bless what I do? That's another way I can be like Nebuchadnezzar. And another popular way is deciding what is right and wrong. And we, instead of humbling ourselves before God's word and tell, tell us, tell me what is true, tell me what is good and wrong. We tell God what is true and what is wrong and we compromise and we make these justifications why, oh, this is okay because of this or this is okay because of this. There are many other ways we can be proud like Nebuchadnezzar, but let's look at how he will respond. How does God respond to the pride of Nebuchadnezzar? Let's look at God's response. Look at verse 24 with me. Did you read this out loud? This is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High declared. Come on, you guys got this? Thank you. God responds to the proud by humbling the proud in the vision. We didn't see this in our text because I skipped it, but a watcher, you can look in your passage, it says a watcher, an angel came down and it's given a mission and the mission is to chop down this tree. But there's mercy. Because this tree is high and lifting itself up and proud, he's going to be chopped down and made humble, but there's going to be a stump left over. And that stump is God's merciful kindness towards Nebuchadnezzar because he will in time after seven periods of time seven being number of perfection often in the Bible so we don't know exactly how long but enough time for Neb to wake up to reality 
to who he is, who God is, he wakes up and then he will be exalted again. So that's the vision and dream that he gets and he interprets that to him. Verse 27, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. You see the gentleness and the humility and respect. Again, hold to your convictions, speak truth, but in, in, in love. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. That's amazing right there. See, remember, King Nebuchadnezzar is supposed to give a, an image, a picture of what Yahweh's rule is like. The way God treats the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, gives a picture of his merciful, loving heart. And King Nebuchadnezzar's empire is characterized by the common phrase that many of you guys probably learned in history, might makes right. Oh, goodness. Okay, yeah, I mean, all right. <laughs> well, you guys know that term before? Might makes right? Okay, well, now you learned it. Might makes right. So basically, it's like a... It's a, it's a nation that is characterized by, you know what, the strong will survive only. And you know what, the poor, they just get in the way. They're, they're inconvenience. Forget them. They hold us back. They limit the gene pool, whatever the mindset is. And so one of the things that characterizes Nebuchadnezzar's rule is that he doesn't care about the poor. This is not a social justice issue. This is a God issue. God cares about how we treat the poor. It rep represents our heart and what God is like. God's heart and what he is like. And what he's supposed to do is know that he is representing God and rule like God would rule with humility and justice for all and mercy and kindness. This is not what happens, though. Would you look at verse 28 now with me? Read this out loud, would you, again with me? But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. guy feels, it, it, it seems insane, right? Like, really, Neb, Neb, Neb you're going to do this again? Again, I mean, it's like, he's kind of like me. I'm just probably worse and how slow I am. Sometimes God will give you a warning, and it will only come to reality in an, another time. And one of the dangerous things that we can do, this happened a year later. A year feels like a long time. Probably if you're young, a year feels like a really long time. And Nebuchadnezzar gets this dream, and he's probably on high alert. Maybe for the first few days, he's pretty a little bit, a little more on edge and, and trying to do the right thing. But over time, he's like, okay, maybe God's not really going to keep his word. Maybe, it's, maybe, maybe that, that was just like some weird, you know, Taco Bell thing, you know. Maybe it wasn't a real thing, you know. And he just kind of excused it away. And I, I think that's the reality that happens a lot of time at Hume. You hear the word. The Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this week pricking your heart, and you're, you're, you're getting a sense that God is real, and he's trying to communicate with you and wake you up. And then you leave Hume, and then you hold on, you hold on, and then, and then a month later, you're like, uh, maybe I just got a, caught up in the motions, and maybe that, 
that Asian dude was just trying to like manipulate me and maybe it wasn't really God. And then eventually we just started to justify and, 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 and talk ourselves out of the reality of what God said. But just know this, you can't wait out God. Like you're going to die before he does because he doesn't die. His promises will come to pass and it may not be tomorrow, but it will come to pass. And Nebuchadnezzar tried to wait out God and try to think that God would just like forget and not do it but he always keeps his word, always. And one of the things that you see here, that Nebuchadnezzar, again, he's on his roof, and he's probably enjoying the, the hanging gardens as one of the known ancient wonders. You guys know how there's like seven ancient wonders? One of the ones is the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was stunning. I wish I could see it. It was very Eden-like. He's probably seeing all this and be like, man, I'm something special. Again, reminder that often it's prosperity that lulls us to sleep. And that is why it's so dangerous being in America. Uh, let me just do a side. I think I have time. Um, you know, there's a, there's a story in the last few years of an Iranian couple that came to the States to live here. They, they escaped Iran. In Iran, um, there's a house church network in Iran. You cannot be a Christian legally, and they go under intense persecution in Iran if you're a Christian. In this couple, they moved over to the States, and after six months or a year of living here, the wife looks to the husband and says, can we go back? She said, there's a satanic lullaby in this land, and everybody's sleeping, and I'm getting sleepy. Can we go back? There's a reason why Jesus says how it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, what is the great dream that almost every one of your parents has for you? <laughs> why would we want to make it harder for us to enter the kingdom of heaven? And yet, we all think that we're the exception, that we can handle wealth and prosperity and comfort without it lulling us to sleep. I'm not saying avoid prosperity, but I definitely are not encouraging you to pursue it. Because prosperity is often one of the greatest tools used by the world and our flesh and Satan to lull us to sleep. And you need to steward it very, very carefully. And typically what I see God do is that he, those who already have, have prosperity, uh, he then shows them how to use it. But those who try to pursue prosperity for him, it usually goes really poorly. Just a side note. But you see this with Nebuchadnezzar. Every time things go well, he forgets Yahweh. He forgets the Lord. And this is actually harkens back to the Old Testament because this is what Yahweh said to his people. He said, when you go to the promised land, you're going to have houses that you didn't build. You're going to inherit all these vineyards and life is going to be good and you're going to forget who I am. Do not forget. Do not forget. And that's so common for us is that when things go well, we forget and we think it's all us. We may give God a, a little praise. Dear God, thank you for this day. Give him his little crumbs, cookie crumbs, and then go on happy with ourselves. Temptation, prosperity is often a greater temptation than even suffering. Now we're going to see God's response to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Look, look at what he says, verse 31. While these words were still in his mouth, remember, Nebuchadnezzar's just praising himself, pretty happy about himself. A voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer the rule, ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. 
You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird, bird's claws. That's insane. What is happening here is that God in his mercy is waking up King Nebuchadnezzar to realize and manifest that which is in his heart now becomes physical. Do you hear what I just said? What was in his heart was a beastly man, a selfish, beastly man driven by instincts in the flesh. And what God did is kindly let that beast manifest physically so that Nebuchadnezzar could waken up to what's inside. You tracking with me? This, this is not new for Nebuchadnezzar. This was always there. It's just now being shown physically. This is a very important principle I want to share with you, is that you become what you worship. Nebuchadnezzar worships himself, and, and so he complete, continues to degrade into a beastly person. This is what happened in Genesis. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve to be like God. And what happens? Instead of being given the world that they were promised and the freedom and the autonomy, they're actually, sin enters the world, death enters the world, and then even their next generation, one of their sons murders the other son. We become beastly. When we try to lift ourselves high, we actually do the opposite. We go lower, and we become, become more beastly, more, less human, less what God made us to be. When you are living and operating in the impulses of your flesh, in the pride of your own heart, and the lust of the flesh, you are actually becoming less like God and more like a creature, more like a beast, and less like the image of God God created you to be. And that is what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. God is mercifully waking him up by letting what's inside come out on the outside. We get a vivid, vivid picture of what actually is the case when we're living with pride and disregarding God. We are out of our minds. King Nebuchadnezzar is out of his mind. He's insane for these seven periods, however long it is. And it just shows us there is nothing actually crazier than not rightfully worshiping and submitting to God. That is the most insane thing you can do. Listen, students, that's the most insane way to live. You may not be driven out into the forest to live like a wild animal. That wouldn't happen. You'd just be thrown into the, the insane asylum. But that is actually the most insane way to live and some of you are in that state you are insane you're out of your mind to actually try to be your own god to reject the rightful loving rule of your king your creator and try to do things your own way you are out of your mind this is the effect of what happens when we try to get on god's level and do things on our our own terms there's only one escape for nebuchadnezzar and for us and it's in verse 34 would you read this? At the end of the days. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar understands that God reigns over him, that he is not God, that everything he has is a kind, merciful gift from a sovereign God. Everything you have, students, the fact that you have breath, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Jesus is holding the universe. 
You have breath because God gives you breath. Everything you have is of God. And first time in this story, Nebuchadnezzar actually sees himself as lowly and God is high and God accomplishes purpose. Five times this passage says that the purpose God has is humbling Nebuchadnezzar is that he would know God. God's goal for Nebuchadnezzar is not just to put him in the place, but to give him himself. God loves Nebuchadnezzar. He does. He loves this wicked, evil, dictator, tyrant, and he wants to give him himself. And you can't have God if you stay perched up in your own pride. And so he has to humble you so you can have him and receive him rightly. Then he declares the greatness of God. Read this with me slowly. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? He is humbled. He sees that God is the only true sovereign and everything he has is on loan. Verse 36, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom and even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he's able to humble the proud. It's interesting is that in addition to humility comes love and respect. He doesn't, he's not bitter at God. He's not like, God, this tyrannical sovereign God doing whatever he wants, fine, whatever. He respects and loves because you know what? The most loving thing God can do for you is to humble you. Because the biggest thing that is keeping you from God is your pride. And so it would be very unloving of God to keep you in your arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency. Nebuchadnezzar receives that as a great mercy, as a great love, that God would humble him. God restores him and exalts him. And that's actually the reality for the Christian too. We humble ourselves and in due time, God will exalt us. And sometimes on the earth in different ways and positions. But ultimately, do you know that the end goal, the end destination for the Christian is that we're going to be co-rulers with Jesus. That we'll be given charge over things as the new heavens, new earth converge on, on this earth and righteousness and justice rules forever and sin and death are no more. We get to rule with them forever and be exalted. Now, let me close with this. We don't just trust in God because he's powerful and sovereign. There's more to his heart than that. I want to remind you of a verse that we just skipped. Not remind you. I'm going to take you to verse 17 of chapter 4. Would you read this with me? The last one I'm going to have you read. For this has been decreed by the messengers. God's desire is not to set proud people, but lowly, humble people over the throne to rule. But the problem is, those don't really exist, do they? We don't really have humble, lowly people ruling or leading. But there is one person in all history that we can rightly call lowly and humble. And in fact, he identified himself as such. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Jesus describes himself, and he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We don't need just a king that is sovereign and powerful, which that is necessary. We also have a king who is gentle and lowly and can sympathize with your hurts and your brokenness, who's been in your full human condition, suffered with you, and stayed faithful through it all. We have a king that is both mighty and a king that is humble. And maybe there's someone in authority in your life or in your church that has abused you, mistreated you, taken advantage of you, used their power wrongly. Know that Jesus never does. Jesus never manipulates. Jesus never abuses his power. Instead of clawing his way upward, he willingly goes downward and serves the disgusting feet of his disciples and loves people. And his path to the throne is not one of might and power, but actually of humility and of suffering and through a cross. His throne is, 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 is went through. The way to get to the cross is The way to get to his throne is through a cross, unlike any other king. That's his way to rule, that he suffers for his people. He associates with his people, he suffers with his people, and he dies for his people. No one is more trustworthy than this Jesus. This is a God that we can surrender to and lay down our pride and our anxieties and our doubts so we can trust his heart. It's one thing to submit to a mighty God who's powerful and strong. But it's another thing to submit to a God who's mighty and strong who you can trust with your heart to. And this Jesus is gentle and lowly. And you can trust him to be the God of your life. Wouldn't it be nice to stop trying to call the shots? Wouldn't it be nice in one sense to stop trying to control and to figure everything out? Wouldn't it be nice to have the smartest person in all of history and all of the universe make those decisions for you? who knows everything, who knows the future, the past, and the present? What if you could just hand over your heart to that God, who not only is sovereign, but also gentle and lowly and loves you deeply? We're going to talk more about chapter 4 or 5 and 6 tonight, but in preparation for tonight, I want to invite you this week, today during free time, to grab a few friends, if they're willing, don't force anyone, and go on the trail of hope. Who here has gone on the trail of hope before? Okay, like maybe, maybe a fourth of you, okay? The trail of hope is that way, okay? So you know how you went to wreck the other day that way? There's a, there's a trail, and it says trail of hope. You can't miss it. And throughout this trail, it's like medium difficulty. It'll take you maybe 30 to 40 minutes total. There's different Bible verses going through something called the Romans Road. And I want you to stop at each one and consider these verses, meditate them, pray about them. Take as long as you need on each one and think about what it means for you. Pray about it. Pour out your anxieties. If you're mad at God, if you feel like he's hurt you or wrong, you just tell him how you feel. He's a big boy. He can handle that. He can handle that. He's secure. He's more secure than you. You tell him how you feel. You tell him what you're wrestling through. You pour out your heart. He's ready to listen. And you go through these verses and you're finally going to end up at the cross. And you spend some time there. And you just talk to him about these things. Consider giving up being your own God. Consider his gentle and lowly heart that's mighty and gentle and loving. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you're not just great and mighty, but you're also lowly and gentle, and you can sympathize with us. You can meet us there. God, protect us from the danger 
of trying to pick one or the other. We just want the lowly, lovely, lovely, lovey-dovey Jesus, but he has no power or authority. Or we have this tyrannical Jesus who's powerful but does not have a heart. Help us hold both realities together. I pray that as many students here would actually take my challenge up and be able to go to the Trail of Hope and you would meet them in the word, meet them in nature, and speak to them. And that this free time would not be wasted. Lord, I pray that if there's any students here who really want to seek you, that you would give them the courage to stand up if any of their friends are trying to hold them back and that they would prioritize honoring and loving you and fearing you more than their friends. Give them that courage by your spirit. We, we are so cowardice without you, so we give us strength. And I pray that you wake us all up more. All of us need a greater awakening to who you are. So please work this whole day. Protect these kids from any lies and attacks from the evil one, from offense, from bitterness, from divisions from each other. I pray that there would be peace and that we would seek you all day and that you do a mighty work tonight. In Jesus' name.